William Carlos Williams was a poet who practiced medicine in Rutherford, New Jersey at the beginning of the 20th century. He focused on obstetrics and pediatrics. These were the days of house calls. I'm joined now from California by Red Wing Kesar, poet and educator and a midwife to the dying. Red Wing, welcome. Thank you, so happy to be here. So I wanna do a thought experiment with you. And that is, I want us to read William's very famous poem about plums in the icebox. And after we listen to it once, I wanna take two divergent paths and see how it changes the poem. So do you have it handy? Do you have it there with you? I do have it handy. Why don't you read it? And then I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into things. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I don't know about monkey wrenches. but <laughs> All right. This poem is called This Is Just To Say. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet and so cold. Okay, now let's say that this poem is autobiographical. It's the height of summer, July, August. That's when plums are in season in New Jersey. He's been called out just past midnight to deliver a baby, a joyous occasion. A baby girl is now in the arms of a loving family, and the doctor, after a couple hours, returns home, opens the icebox, sees the plums there. It's 4 a.m., and the sun will start to brighten the sky in about an hour. He sits at the kitchen table and writes the note. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. Okay, now let's imagine the same scenario. Mm -hmm. But this delivery in the middle of the night is complicated. The outcome is sorrow, not joy. And a family's hope has turned to tears. And again, the doctor returns home, stops in the kitchen on his way back to bed. Again, he sits at the kitchen table and writes a note. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. What do you think? Does that, does that poem change by the biography of the situation? I think it does. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I think that stopping at the refrigerator, or sorry, the icebox, and pulling two plums out in the middle of the night after a bad outcome is entirely different from the joy one would feel coming home after delivering a child into a family's arms. I agree. So today on the program, we're going to talk about poetics and medicine this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. Two conversations on today's program. First up, Dr. Ira Bayak talks with poet and physician Patrick Clary 
about, among other things, why some of the best poetry can be written on a prescription pad. Remember those? And then later, Red Wing Kesar returns to talk with me about poetry as medicine. Stay with us. Dr. Ira Bayak is the founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. He's a leading palliative care physician, author, and advocate for improving care for people at all ages and all stages of life. He sat down virtually with Dr. Patrick Clary, a hospice and palliative care physician and poet. Dr. Clary, Patrick, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you for uh, dialoguing with me today about one of my favorite subjects. And mine as well. You know, when I met you, I met you because uh, we're both palliative care physicians. I found out to my delight that that you're quite an accomplished poet. I, I guess I want to start with the first question is, Patrick, why do you write poems? Because it's what I do best. It's what I was taught best to do. Uh, pause a moment to remember my best teacher at Georgetown, Roland Flint, who was a what's now the National Poet Laureate for a couple of years and uh, taught by mostly by saying poetry, by knowing poetry, his own and others, uh, and could uh, produce an appropriate poem at the drop of a proverbial hat. But poetry has become very important in your life. I, I know that. What makes it so? Because it's accessible, uh, because as a busy clinician, I wasn't able to get a hold of vast spaces of time uh, that would allow me to write long prose pieces. But as William Carlos Williams suggested, you could write a poem on a prescription pad. So just having an image from a day's work or something I'd seen uh, outside of work allowed me a starting point, and I didn't have to have a lot of time at my disposal. And it was something I knew how to do because I'd been taught to do it. So it's a way for you to express yourself in, in, in a manner that you already have a skill set for, a voice uh, to, for? To, to some extent, I, it's also something I can do with images that uh, occur in practice to remember them, to memorialize them, uh, to understand them. I don't really feel like I've had a thought until I've written it down and then rewritten it. Hmm. Well, poetry for me as a physician has touched places that are not otherwise easily touched. I, I, I let me share something with you. Um, Years ago, in 1984, I was a young uh, rural family doc now, and also doing emergency medicine. And I had had a really strenuous residency experience in Fresno, California, safety net hospital, incredible patient load, uh, uh, caring for just, just a teeming population of patients, many of them indigent in this county hospital. And in 1984, I came upon a, a, a poem uh, in 
of all places, co-evolution quarterly, where you know we uh, left-leaning uh, young post-hippie professionals uh, would um, would find out what's going on in the world, and and I I still have that poem. Uh, I I tore it out of the co-evolution quarterly, and and it actually um, lived in my drawer. Uh, of my desk uh, in my office for years. And wherever I moved, I would always take this poem. The poem uh, was called The Pain. It starts this way. I had a patient once who knew one phrase, falling down drunk in the street or just falling. He broke up every cast we put on him and never healed. Finally, I admitted him from the emergency room to stretch his shattered leg in traction, and hear him cry, the pain, the pain, two months last year. Such patients go by different names in different places, but they're all the same. They wait until they're dying, and then brought in by cops, they smell like nothing I have ever knew before, some mix of excrement and tear gas. They cannot bear the weight that goes with being poor. They've learned that dying never waits. So after midnight, you smell them coming. Even the cops puke sometimes. Even the tiled room with the hose leaves them stinking and infested. A little later, I almost care for them. They hurt me when they can. It hurts me that I always hurt them back. I have stopped an elevator between floors to scream like a man caught in a car wreck after working 30 hours straight and found it did no good. The loudspeakers cry my name. There is a man stinking of blood, oil, and beer waiting for another pair of hands in the emergency department, and he cannot stop screaming. I've seen babies born addicted to addicted mothers scream when their faces show and seem to want to crawl back against the punishing contractions of the womb as if they knew they faced two months of weaning. Once across the hall from pain like that, a five-year-old girl sang all of Silent Night to me, sitting on my examining table, swinging her perfect legs as I did not weep. I have slept five nights a week for years, yet they have something left to teach me. And even if I learn everything I need to leave and leave them still at night, sometimes when I have no sleep to spare, I will wake and cry, the pain, the pain. That poem really spoke to my experience of training during the late 1970s and, and uh, early 1980s. Um, and, and, and as I say, I carried it and, and years later, some, some 13 or 14 years later, uh, meeting a colleague uh, at a bar, uh, I shared this experience of having a poem so deeply affect me that I carried it. And and the, the physician I shared that experience with was you. I had no idea I would ever meet the author of that poem. Do you remember us meeting at Lake Maury? In Vermont, certainly at Jenny Fry's conference. Yeah, that I wrote that poem right out of my residency, which was uh, similar to yours, but very urban, uh, Downstate Medical Center, Brooklyn, uh, and uh, it's it still uh, it's it still kind of creeps me out. 
and I have reservations about it, but I, I am so glad that it connected us. Well, I got chills when I realized, like, and I, I think I remember saying, you wrote that poem? <laughs> oh my God, you can't imagine how important that poem has been to me because I don't know how one would have expressed that experience, though, that that depth of experience, if not through a poem. Poetry is 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 hard to define. It's it's uh, defined partly by line breaks and structure. Uh, it's 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 writing that comes out of a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience and and language is important there, chosen, arranged, uh, to to elicit uh, an image and an emotional response. Uh, Frost called poetry a momentary stay against confusion. And for me, sometimes that's been true, especially those little poems you might write a, a haiku, even prescription sized. Do you use poetry in, in your medical practice? I do use poetry in my medical practice. I have a number of poems that I know by heart that I can bring out uh, in common situations when it seems appropriate. It's a kind of a portmanteau response. It's something that, that does a lot of good in different situations. What attracted me to hospice and palliative medicine initially was that it was considered normal to read poetry at meetings. Uh, I'd never experienced that in medicine before. So it was certainly gratifying to be asked to show up whole uh, as I had not been in medicine. I was a closet poet. I'm, I've been out of the closet for some time now in that respect. How about with patients? Do you ever read poems to patients or uh, as a, uh, a music therapist used to say, pull a poem out of a patient? I've, I've, done, I've gone both ways. I remember a, a case of a guy who was seeming, seeming to take a long time to die. These patients who outlive their prognosis, as we say in hospice care. I remember a particular house call uh, on, a, on a man who was about my age at the time and was married to uh, a university professor, as I am, and had a house full of books. There were a lot of connections between us, and and it was really, really not clear to me what was going on here. That why it was that that he was living so much longer than all the hospice nurses had had thought, outlasted some of his nurses who had gone on to other work, um, <clears throat> and. and I, I asked his permission, as I always do, to, to um, say a poem that I thought might, might help him. Uh, you know the poem, Ira, uh, a Mary Oliver poem in Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. 
and every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. When I was halfway through that poem, his wife came into the room and began saying the poem with me. She knew that mm. poem as well and loved it. Wow. And he, he said, after I finished, he said, you know, I, I haven't been able to let go because, because I can't hurt my family that way. Oh. They went on to talk about it and how necessary it was and how painful it was to watch him diminishing. And he was dead in a few days. Boy. Uh, Ira, one of the books you've written that I, that I, that I really love is the, the, um, the Four Things book, The Four Things That Matter Most, uh, which you and I know has gone back and forth between four and five and six. Sometimes it's hard <laughs> to keep track of. But the tasks that hospice nurses teach, um, the, the tasks of the relationship completion, which are um, which have long been the, the, my most common prescription. I actually write them on a, on a prescription pad ordinarily i i write the name it's just like official except that your prescription card won't cover it uh and the 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 five tasks that that i think of as as critical at the end of a relationship are to express forgiveness to request forgiveness to affirm affection to express gratitude that is to say thank you and to say goodbye. And as I've, as I've written these prescriptions, I've had some kind of odd reactions. I remember a woman who's been, been married for more than 50 years and whose husband never, never gave her a moment when she thought that she was not the most important person in the world to him. This was the man who was dying now and I was asking her to forgive him. How dare I? He was always perfect. Now, one of the things we learn in medicine is that you can use silence and wait people out. I waited her out. Damn it, he's dying. I can't forgive that. But that was exactly what she had to forgive. Hmm. That experience and, the, and knowing the, the tasks of relationship completion uh, led me to, to write about that. Could I, could I read that poem? 
Please do. It's called Five Tasks Taught by Hospice Nurses. Now, uh, this is dedicated to my brother. Um, my brother was a roofer uh, and a roustabout and a rough guy in a lot of ways, though very, very lovely. Uh, he was killed in an industrial accident in Arizona in 1988. And I used to think that the fact that I took up hospice work in 1988 was a coincidence. The hospice nurses thought that was rich. <laughs> uh, many of them had similar stories. A death in the family led them to understand how neglected bereavement and death and dying are in our medical industrial complex and reacted against it. So five tasks taught by hospice nurses to my brother. One, say goodbye. You called me at work to ask for a loan and said goodbye as sweetly as if I'd said yes. I was unhappy and probably rude. It was the last time we talked. Two, express forgiveness. I forgive you for stepping over the edge, wearing a roofer's safety harness clipped stylishly to nothing, momentary angel over Arizona. When you were seven, you flew a swing set outside our Chilean house through an earthquake as walls and ceilings collapsed into themselves. More, make it do that again. Your life was not as short as I feared, nor as long as I hoped. Three, request forgiveness. Forgive me for not lending you the money to buy that motorcycle, for not admi admiring your poetry, for never taking a photograph of you with my sons. Forgive me for not wrestling with you into more sunsets the summer before I was drafted. Forgive me for being your imitation angel, for leaving you with that elephant in the living room. Forgive me for living, for a firm affection. I love you for being obvious about loving me when I was 15 and thought I couldn't bear to be loved. You were too young to know better. You were so alive, your death seemed impossible. If you could die, everyone would. Five, express gratitude. Thank you for giving me back my lost family in Montana where we scattered your ashes, according to your instructions, up Big Creek Canyon and on the 100-year floodplain of the Bitterroot River. West Yellowstone burned all the week of your death, frosting windshields white in July. Now, when I visit, and I visit often, I do work I love while I stay in a lodge built 10 years ago of first growth timber salvaged from that fire. Now I see living is a kind of slow burning and love is what we salvage from the fire. You do that well, Patrick. You do that well. I remember your response to that poem, Ira, which I sent you by email when email was young. <laughs> uh, and you, you suggested that, that uh, the last two lines should, should go. I should get rid of them. And it, it, always, uh, it always gratified me that uh, this is one of the few of my poems that's ever been set to music, and they use those two lines as the refrain. You know, I don't remember that, but I, but I've been wrong so many times, so that it, it, 
I'm glad that you didn't listen to my advice. Uh, I want to read another one of your poems and, and one that uh, I think I have a version that um, uh, was earlier than your compulsive, obsessive editing uh, and that I still like better <laughs> than the final pub <laughs> published version. Um, and this is one of my favorite poems of yours, uh, Patrick. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the story of, of your mom widowed um, finding a gift from your, your dad after he died. Uh, again, it's a Montana poem. It has references to the Yogo sapphires, which uh, are dug up here in Montana. Um, and, and I just love it. It's, it's called Sapphire Anniversary. While he could still drive that 67 pony out for coffee, top down, without his hospice chaperone, he picked out an antique yogo ring, a fair match for her eyes, had it sized and boxed up plush, then forgot it in the side pocket of the leather jacket he never wore again. The plan was to reprise his proposal to spring it on her while they foxtrotted through the 45th anniversary fiesta the kids were planning. A year early, but insufficiently, death cut in. She put off calling goodwill and kept his closet full. By the time her daughters took her out to celebrate what would have been the anniversary itself, could bear to borrow the jacket and wear it, she was barely surprised by the gift, slipped it on, smiling to herself, back in the arms of her dancing man. <laughs> I think that's about version 63, and I usually go to about 130. You're right. Maybe I should have stopped. I love that poem. I, I, I can barely get through it without tearing up, frankly. Well, thank you, Ira. Poems carry emotion. They evoke emotion. Well, they're intended to, they don't always succeed. Well, they, they foster connections between people. And, uh, you know, I've used them clinically, uh, not often, but occasionally, uh, to, again, kind of foster that connection, to get to places that we could not get to easily just by, um, by prose, frankly by conversation. It's a remarkable skill that you have. I use them in teaching as well. I, I find them powerful illustrations that without the, uh, without the need for, for technology, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of, of teaching advanced care planning to a group of professionals who were uh, trying to figure out how to introduce the idea of death to people who are, who are pretty well. I mean, this, this is something we do routinely now, but it seemed radical at that time. Uh, another Mary Oliver poem, The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open 
and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what is it I should have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? You know, that's a poem I've used in clinically as well in the same circumstance, talking with people about what's next. Um, it's funny, just as, as I was just re reading that, it's actually a poem I know by heart, but since nobody is looking, I'm going to read it so I get it right. I was thinking, why am I reading this? I don't remember where that where those lines about what is it you plan to do with your wild and precious life? When are they going to come up? I don't know if you could hear me being desperate, mm. but, but of course they were the last two lines. I have also used poetry, uh, I think particularly when I'm meeting people clinically who um, are not religious, don't believe in God, don't pray, and are struggling with questions of where they fit within the world and what happens next and what is life and all of that. And, and um, this is a, I want to read a very brief poem that I've used several times to, to uh, engender further exploration and, and frankly, connection with people in those difficult situations. You do not need to leave your room, remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen, simply wait. Do not even wait. Be quiet, still, and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. And I ask people, who, who do you think wrote that? And I get answers like, you know, Rilke or uh, Rumi. Khalil Gibran or Rumi, right? No, it was written by Franz Kafka. <laughs> the, the quintessential Between existentialist, insects, right? Quite, quite interesting, isn't it? That Kafka, who didn't believe in, you know, in some sense, you know, we think of as as championing the the, the perception of a unfeeling universe and and our ultimate insignificance, um, had the perspective that um, the world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. Well, wow. you and I and everybody who's worked with people who, who are dying probably have an above average uh, sense that there is something else. Uh, I don't have any idea what it is, uh, but it does appear as 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 patients approach uh, what some describe as as a light. Um, there, here, here's a poem 
from from my book, the title poem from my second book, Dying from Dying for Beginners, uh, which is dedicated to Wes Burwell, uh, D. Men. Wes was the chaplain of the first and the second hospices I I directed medically. Uh, I don't know whether he was following me around or I was following him around, uh, but he he himself just died recently. Um, this describes his his situation just a bit. Um, dying for beginners to Wes Burwell. Our chaplain's 60th birthday present to himself was the new career he saw on a vision fast in the Canyonlands. He would help others over the river as harbor seals are said to help lost swimmers, nudging them toward shore, practice for mortality by serving other mortals. Two, Hospice staff struggled with the daughter who declined to tell her demented dying mother of a son's unexpected death. Then the old lady saw her boy waiting for her to cross, thought the chaplain might know a little prayer to help her find her ticket for the ferry, and he did. Three, the engineer with end-stage cancer lived for their visits, not only meandering with the chaplain through memories, his loving marriage, work well done, well-educated children. He prized the weekly chance to scoff at angels and any possibility of heaven. His last word, wow. Four, when Silas had his fifth MI, we put Nan safely in the nursing home again, where her slow-moving ALS would have left her forever years ago without his constant vigilance. The transfer had become routine. The night Silas died in the ICU, in spite of pressors, ventilation, ICD, and CPR, the stream of alphabetic torment he'd carefully directed in advance, I called ahead so Nan's hair could be brushed while Wes held her hand, and I raced the small town news to her bedside. A unit clerk put me on hold for a few measures of Packlebell returned to tell me not to make the 20 minute drive. Her nurse just found her lifeless and could pronounce her if I would certify that death had been expected. Five, a circle of a hundred mourners standing in a California meadows released their helium balloons into a flood of sunlight. The ring of rising multicolored dots was bent by currents of the breeze into the kind of lopsided heart a child might have drawn for reassurance against the blank, untouchable sky. Wow. Patrick, thank you for this. Um, any, any concluding thoughts? What, what what does poetry in general have to teach us, or how can we better use this as a vehicle uh, within medicine and maybe as medicine? That's a that's a doozy, as they say in Montana. <laughs> that's quite a question. Uh, uh, a colleague at Georgetown, uh, Norm Rosenthal, psychiatrist, called poetry a vaccine for the soul. And I think that's, that's part of, of what poetry does. It holds a mirror up to us. It 
helps us understand what has just happened, helps us reflect on what has just happened, what's going to happen. I don't see it so much as as a medical practice, as a humane practice and a way for us as we do medicine to maintain our way of looking at, at our patients as people. Mm. Yeah. Maybe it quiets our rational mind so that the so that the soul can be heard or seen, experienced. Patrick, thank you for writing and for sharing these poems with us. Well, I, Ira, thank you for the work you do. Uh, it's, it's amazing to watch you uh, from a distance. <laughs> well, until we're together again, this has been a, a delightful way to, to share some time together. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you, Ira. Poet Patrick Clary is a hospice and palliative care physician. His poems are collected in the book Dying for Beginners. Ira Bayak is the founder and chief medical officer of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. His books include The Best Care Possible and The Four Things That Matter Most. Just ahead, Red Wing Kesar will be back to talk with me about how well-crafted words can heal. Stay with us. Back now with the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. Red Wing Kesar has had many roles in her more than 30-year nursing career. Midwife to the dying, palliative care nurse and consultant, teacher, writer, poet, songwriter, and lifelong activist. Today, she directs patient and caregiver education at the Mary Center for Education in Palliative Care at the University of California, San Francisco's Mount Zion campus. She joins us now from California. Red Wing, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you here. I want to start with a poem, and I know that you've got one teed up for us. So <laughs> that's, that's how we'll go. Sounds good. I love starting everything with a poem, quite honestly. Meetings conversations, <laughs> teaching sessions. So this poem is by um, a retired Dr. John Wright, and it's called Therapy to Philip. You attribute my recovery to nortriptyline, its effects on neurotransmitters on the amygdala. You barely nod towards your worth insisting on blood levels 
on a therapeutic dose. While I credit half our success to pear trees blossoming white beyond your left shoulder, to the wisteria, its pink flowers hanging lush and fragrant over the portico, to the warmth of your hand. Therapy by John Wright, read by Red Wing Kesar. What a lovely poem. Yeah. I'm curious, what do you hear in it? What do you hear today? What stands out today in this particular poem and what often stands out to me from this poem is how much of healing happens outside of what we consider a clinical experience or conversation, but to all the other realms that are happening at the same time that often we don't give credit to or even really understand sometimes what is happening outside of that conversation. I'm struck, I think, by the duality that it's just making so plainly clear that a lot of us approach things with sort of science in one brain and nature art in the other brain and don't allow them to meet, where clearly in nature they do meet. They absolutely do meet. And as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross told us many, many years ago that when the science of medicine can no longer do its work, it's the art of medicine that really must take over. And for me, poetry and poetic medicine is, is such an important part of that. The whole idea of a poetry as a healing force mm-hmm. um, because it helps us to feel things about our lives. And when we make poems, it sometimes reveals things for us that we didn't even really know that we knew or understood. But when you allow that creative process to happen, something remarkable often happens. And I think it happens in listening to poetry as well. You know, for the past year during this crazy pandemic, um, I have offered poetic medicine sessions as part of palliative care, as part of this whole field that believes that we need to relieve suffering for people, not only physically and medically with science, um, but psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. And we have to tap into a lot of different modalities to do that. And one of the things that surprised me in offering this during the pandemic was how many people were hungry Mm. for this work and for the healing of it. So, you know, we started out with one session a week, um, specifically just about resiliency because things were being so hard, not only for clinicians, but for patients and for everyone. And then we added a session specifically about called loss, losing and loosening for people to work with the grief that we've all just been living in this huge bubble of grief for a long time now. Right. And 
people needing and wanting access to how do we deal with this? How do we explore it in, in a meaningful way? And then it became clear that we needed yet a third session because we had waiting lists for all the other sessions. And we started a session focused on the wounded healer, which attracted a lot of clinicians because that is so much the, the role that they are in right now. Right. Tell me about the sort of practical nature of the, the uh, poetic medicine sessions. What, how, how were they constructed? So it's a one-hour session, and it starts with very quick introductions of who happens to be in the square circle on the screen that day, people's names, where they live in the world, and there are many people um, internationally who show up at these circles. Um, and then an image or a word that might describe how someone is feeling in the moment that morning at that time. And that's all we do in terms of introduction. And then I typically send out two poems the night before to people who have registered. And I read those poems and ask people to respond to a phrase, a line, a word, really just that resonates with their heart. It's not about analyzing poetry. It's not about figuring out what a poem really means. It's just about responding to how it touches you, what, what emotion is evoked when you hear a poem. And then I typically offer a prompt from that poem and also let people know that if there's a particular phrase that they want to use as their prompt, um, to feel free to do that. And then I ring the bell and set the timer and we write for five minutes. Huh. And when we come back, um, people share what they've written, and we are always astonished at what comes through in five minutes because people have written some really incredible poetry. And people who, you know, started out saying, I'm not a poet, I'm not a writer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this one man who's been attending the grief series, The Lost, Losing, and Loosening, for really since it started last year, um, you know, when he arrived, he said, I don't think I've written a poem since I was in grade school. <laughs> and I said, that's okay. He's like, I'm not a, really a writer or a poet. But he was grieving the loss of his partner who had died in January, just before the pandemic started. And he has been writing poetry ever since. And in the specific um, grief group that he's in at Kaiser Hospital, people started saying to him, you seem to be doing so well, mm. like you're getting through this process in such a different way. What do you think is, is the root of that? And he said, I'm writing poems. Mm. So here's one of the short poems that he wrote called, Though There Is Grieving. Though There Is Grieving, there is joy, an unbounded gratefulness for our time together on this short ride we call life. My great fortune to find you in the sea of possibilities, as if some supernatural magnet brought us together out of necessity, a necessity of the gods, goddess, or maybe just some unknown molecular magic.
that mere humans can't access. An event like celestial lightning forging us into one perfect meant to be. Hmm. That's lovely. And he's just continued on in this process of using writing and making poems as his own personal healing modality. So Red Wing, it sounds like what may be happening here is that you've given people permission to be quiet for five minutes yeah. in an otherwise hectic pandemic world and allowed them to to connect with that creative spirit that, that's in all of us. Absolutely. And that's so essential to all of us. You may or may not be familiar with a group called the Theater of War, which is an amazing theater company out of New York that uses Greek plays and Greek tragedies to mm. um, connect us to present-day issues. And they use um, you know, professional actors to do a short reading of a portion of a Greek tragedy and then have people respond from current day and connect the issues. So we set UCSF and Stanford offered a session with Theater of War um, a couple of weeks ago for healthcare professionals who have been on the front lines. Uh, and not just professionals, but all healthcare workers um, on the front lines. And there were 2,000 people on Zoom. And then we did a debriefing afterwards about this idea of moral distress and moral injury that has happened over the last year and how do people who work in healthcare cope with any of this. And so much of the response by the end of the debriefing session was, we need to use our creativity to cope. Um, it's for so many people, it's, it is a way to, to embody the resiliency that we talk about Right. You know, Rachel Remen, who is a, a doctor who many people listening probably know about, who was an amazing doctor and writer, philosopher, um, who worked a lot in the realm of the art of medicine and teaching doctors about what it means to be a whole person. And she is very much one of the people... <sighs> you know, sort of in this field of poetic medicine. She wrote part of the introduction to John Fox's book on poetic medicine. And one of the things she says is that writing poetry together heals our loneliness because what is true for someone on the deepest level is often true for all of us. And that when we read a poem aloud and we listen to the poems of others, it helps heal the alienation, which is so much a part of our world. And that, you know, not only the world of healthcare workers, but the world in general. You know, your mention of going back to classic works really hits home with me. Um, one of the poems that I've been chewing over for more than, I don't know, a year and a half now, has been Seamus Heaney's The Cure of Troy, which has that amazing line, believe in miracles and cures and healing wells, mm -hmm. which just seems to call out to us to hearken back to those old healing modalities and, 
and embrace them because there's something there that's powerful. We forget, <laughs> you know, we forget so many of the healing modalities that are, are with us all the time, you know, and that have been part, part of the various cultures that so many of us come from. Um, you know, another great quote from Dr. Rachel Remen is that she says, you know, we may have lost faith in our ability to write poems just as we have lost faith in our ability to heal and that recovering the poet strengthens the healer and sets free the unique song that is at the heart of every life. Mm. Mm. You know, we all have this the healer and, and the one who needs healing within us. Here's a, a short poem by a, um, a woman who, was, who is a patient who was part of one of these workshops, and she wrote this short poem called Healing for Herself. Healing lies inside of you. Your body knows what to do, but you must stop and listen to it in order to be cured. You must stop and listen, must stop, listen in order to be cured, listen to be cured, listen to your body in order to be cured. Uh, listening is not something we do very well. <laughs> <laughs> that would be and true. That, <laughs> said by someone who's made a living trying to listen, you know? <laughs> right. um, but the good news, Red Wing, is that it can be reclaimed. You can really learn to listen again. I believe yeah. that, believe that wholeheartedly. Absolutely. You know, and I think for so many of the people who show up in these poetic medicine sessions, um, it is about recognizing how important it is just to take time to listen, to listen to words that might inspire something in us, to listen to each other, and listening to the feelings that people allowed to come through in their poems was an incredible healing and an incredible gift. You know, like how, how often do we just stop for an hour or stop for a few minutes and listen? If you'll indulge me, I want to read a poem to you. Sure. That is... Uh, an absolute favorite of mine, written by the late John O'Donohue. Oh, I love so, John O'Donohue. <laughs> and the, the poem is Benach, which is the Gaelic word for blessing. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, May a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the curach of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you 
an invisible cloak to mind your life. I love that poem so much. I do too. <laughs> I do too. I know. I've used that poem in, in several sessions, actually. May the clay dance to balance you. Um, tell me about the, the center. Is it, is it the Mary Center? Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> yes, M-E-R-I. Um, the acronym is Making Education Relevant and Integrated. So it's there at the University of California, San Francisco. Yes, uh, we're actually a, a philanthropy-based program that's part of the Division of Palliative Medicine, but it was named after an amazing woman named Mary Jane Block, um, who was a patient and friend of mine and of Dr. Mike Rabos, who's the director of the Mary Center. Um, she lived for 26 years with metastatic cancer. And she was someone who insisted that every clinician that she worked with see her as a whole person and show her part of their whole being. Wow. She created a a mural that um, amazing artwork and on it it says everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would except for life <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to read you one of Mary Jane Block's poems oh I'd love to hear it so this was written in 2011 and at that point she was 20 years into metastatic cancer this is a poem called, We Are Sustained, We Are Transformed. By the love of friends, by the daily arrival of mail delivered by our neighbors, by the dusk sky turning Maxfield Parish blue, by the handmade rolls anonymously left at our front door, still warm from the secret donor's oven, by the email from one of the ones who got away 20 years ago, by the immediate yeses to requests for help so nervously sent, by the soothing blanket of the opiate painkiller, by the doctor with the gold hoop in his left ear who listens, by the medical assistant who says, you are always so nice to me, <laughs> by the friend who brings cabbage borscht and pierogi for lunch, by Vietnamese coffee ice cream and ginger lemon sorbet, by the warmth of the sun unaccompanied by wind, by writing together, by laughter. Oh, that's so, so wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Red Wing Kesar is a registered nurse who directs patient and caregiver education at the Mary Center for Education and Palliative Care at UCSF Mount Zion. Earlier, we heard from poet, physician, Patrick Clary and Dr. Ira Bayak, founder of the Institute for Human Caring. You'll find links to all of our guests and their work on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord, Melody Fawcett, and Will Rogers. We have research help from medical librarians Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Amanda Schwartz, Catherine Gibbs, and Heather Martin. 
Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well.